Section 29 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. Section 29 9. The Gate Power There was a tribe at Taranga on the Bay of Plenty with whom Governor Gray was displeased, for they had sent men, guns and food to help the Waikatos, and they showed a warlike disposition. He demanded their submission, and they refused it. He then sent General Cameron with 1,500 soldiers to deal with them. This force found the Taranga tribe prepared to fight in a strong place called the Gate Power, built on a ridge with a swamp at each side. They had 500 men in it, all well armed. Cameron had three heavy guns placed in position, and during the night 700 soldiers passed round one of the swamps to get at the rear of the Maoris. In the morning a terrific fire was opened, and for two hours the place was swept with shot and shell. But the Maoris had dug underground shelters for themselves, and were little injured. After that, the guns were used to break a hole in the palisades, and at four o'clock there was a sufficient breach to admit an attacking party. Three hundred men were chosen, and put in front of the place. A rocket was sent up as a signal, and the attacking party dashed at the breach. As they entered it, not a Maori could be seen, but puffs of smoke all along the earthen bank showed where they were concealed. The assailants were a dense crowd on whom every shot told. All the officers were killed. More men kept crowding in, only to drop before the murderous fire. Suddenly a panic seized the men. A rush was made to get out of the breach again, and while the soldiers were running away, volley after volley was fired into the crowd. General Cameron did not renew the attack, for evening was falling. There came on a dark, wet night, and although surrounded on all hands, the Maoris contrived to slip gently past the sentries, leaving some wounded men behind them. 10. Teranga The Maoris fell back a few miles and chose a strong position at Teranga for a new power. They had only dug the ditches and made some rifle pits when the British were upon them. The troops carried the position with a rush, the Maori standing up against the bayonets with the coolest courage. A hand-to-hand -hand fight forced the natives out of the ditches, and then they turned and fled. The horse soldiers pursued and killed many. Altogether, 123 of the Maoris were killed, and a large number captured, while the English lost ten men killed. 11. Weraroa After this action, though skirmishes were frequent, the Maoris made no determined stand, and on the English side affairs were carried on in a slow fashion. General Cameron had under him 10,000 regular soldiers and nearly 10,000 colonial volunteers. He had nearly a dozen vessels of different sorts, either on the coasts or up the river, and he had an abundance of heavy guns. There arose quarrels between him and the governor, 
who thought that with less than 1,000 Maoris under arms, more progress ought to have been made. General Cameron resigned and departed in the middle of 1865. The governor wished him, before he went, to attack a pa called Weraroa, but the general said he required 2,000 more men to do it, and refused. Yet Sir George Grey, taking himself the command of the colonial forces, captured the fort without losing a man. The bulk of the Maoris escaped, and kept up for a time a guerrilla warfare in forests and on mountain sides. But at last the Taranga tribes, or the miserable remnant that was left, surrendered to the governor. Grey, in admiration of their generous and often noble conduct, and their straightforward mode of fighting, allowed all the prisoners to go free, and though he punished them by confiscating a quarter of their land, he did his best to settle them on the other three-fourths in peace and with such advantages as British help could secure them. So there came quietness round the Bay of Plenty. 12. The How How Religion Meantime, new trouble was brewing in the Taranaki district. There, the soldiers were skirmishing with the Maoris, but had them well in control, when a pair of mad or crafty native priests set the tribes in wild commotion by declaring that the angel Gabriel had told them in a vision that at the end of the year 1864 all white men would be driven out of New Zealand, that he himself would defend the Maoris, and that the Virgin Mary would always be with them, that the religion of the white men was false, and that legions of angels would come and teach the Maoris a better religion. In the meantime, all good Maoris, who shouted the word how, how, as they went into battle, would be victorious, and angels would protect their lives. A body of these fanatics, deeply impressed with the belief in these and many other follies, tried their fortunes against the soldiers at Taranaki, but with small success. Forty of them, in spite of shouting their how, how, fell before the muskets and guns of the white men. Then three hundred of them made an effort in another direction, and, moving down the river Wanganui, threatened the little town at its mouth. Wanganui was defended by three hundred soldiers, but all the outsettlers up the valley were leaving their farms and hurrying in for shelter when three hundred men of the Wanganui tribe, who liked the white men and were friendly with them, offered to fight the Hauhaus. The challenge was accepted, and about two hundred of the fanatics landed on a little island called Mutoa in the middle of the river. Though surrounded by a pretty margin of white pebbles, it was covered with ferns and thick scrub. Through this, at daybreak, the combatants crept towards each other, the how-hows gesticulating and making queer sounds. At last they fell to work, and volley after volley was discharged at only ten yards' distance. The friendly natives, having seen three of their chiefs fall, turned and fled. Many had plunged into the river, when one of their chiefs made a stand at the end of the island, and gathering twenty men around him, poured in a volley and killed the how-how leader. This surprised the fanatics and they hesitated. Then a second volley and a charge routed them. Back came the friendly Maoris who had fled and chased their enemies into the stream, 
wherein a heavy slaughter took place. About seventy of the Hau Haus were slain. The twelve who fell on the friendly side were buried in Wanganui with military honours, and a handsome monument now marks the place where their bones rest. 13. Conclusion of Maori Wars In 1866, General Shute came to take command of the troops in place of General Cameron. A vigorous campaign crushed the Hau Haus after much skirmishing in different parts of the Wellington district. But the chief trouble arose from another source. The 183 prisoners taken at Rangariri, together with some others taken afterwards, were detained on board a hulk near Auckland. Sir George Grey wished to deal in a kindly fashion with them and proposed to release them if they gave their word not to give further trouble. The ministers of his cabinet were against this proposal, but agreed that he should send them to an island near Auckland to live there without any guards. They gave their promise, but broke it, and all but four escaped, Tewaharoa being among them. They chose the top of a circular hill thirty-five miles from Auckland, and there fortified themselves in a pa called Omaha, but they did no harm to anyone and as they soon quietly dispersed, they were not meddled with. A wild outburst of how-how fanaticism on the east coast of the Bay of Plenty stirred up the fires of discord again, when a worthy old Church of England missionary named Mr. Volkner was seized, and after some savage rites had been performed, was hanged on a willow tree as a victim. More fighting followed, in which a large share was taken by a Maori chief named Ropata, who, clad in European uniform and with the title of Major of Ropata, fought stoutly against the Hauhaus and captured several pars. 14. Tekuti When the last of these pars was captured, an English officer declared that one of the friendly chiefs named Tekuti was playing false and acting as a spy. Thinking to do as Governor Gray had done with Rauparaha, this officer seized the chief, who, without trial of any sort, was sent off to the Chatham Islands, a lonely group 300 miles away, which New Zealand was now using as a penal establishment for prisoners. This conduct was quite unfair, as Te Kuti, so far as can now be known, was not a spy and was friendly to the English. Nearly 300 Maoris were on the Chatham Islands, most of them how-how prisoners. They were told that if they behaved well, they would be allowed to return in two years. When two years were passed and no signs of their liberation appeared, Tekuti planned a bold escape. An armed schooner, the rifleman, having come in with provisions, the Maori suddenly overpowered the twelve soldiers who formed their guard and seized the vessel. One soldier was killed whilst fighting, but all the rest were treated gently. The whole of the Maoris went on board, and then the crew were told that unless they agreed to sail the vessel back to New Zealand, they would all be killed. Day and night, Maori guards patrolled the deck during the voyage, and one of them, with loaded gun and drawn sword, always stood over the helmsman and compelled him to steer them home. They reached the shores of New Zealand a little north of Hawke Bay and landed taking with them all the provisions out of the vessel, 
but treating the crew in a kindly way. A ship was sent round with soldiers who attacked the runaways, but they were too few and too hastily prepared, so that Te Kuti easily defeated them. Three times was he attacked by different bodies of troops, and three times did he drive off his assailants. Cutting a path for himself through the forests, he forced his way a hundred miles inland to a place of security. But his people had no farms and no means of raising food in these wild mountain regions, and the provisions they had taken from the riflemen were used in a few months. 15. Poverty Bay Massacre Then, roused to madness by hunger, of which some of them had died, they crept cautiously back to the Poverty Bay district. Falling at night upon the little village, they slaughtered men, women and children, as well as all the quiet Maoris they could catch. The dawn woke coldly on a silent village, wherein fifty or sixty bodies lay gashed and mangled in their beds, or at their doors, or upon their garden paths. An old man and a boy escaped by hiding. After taking all the provisions out of the place, Tekuti set fire to the houses and retreated to the hills, where, on the top of a peak two thousand feet high, he had made a pa called Ngatapa, which was defended on every side by precipices and deep gorges. There was only one narrow approach, and that had been fortified with immense care. The colonial troops under Colonel Whitmore and bodies of friendly Maoris under Rapata attacked him here. The work was very difficult, for after climbing those precipitous hills, there were two palisades to be carried, one seven feet high and the other twelve. But science prevailed. After great exertions and appalling dangers, the place was captured by Rapata, who climbed the cliffs and gained a corner of the palisades, killing a great number of Tekuti's men in the action. During the night, the rest escaped from the power, sliding from the cliffs by means of ropes. But in the morning they were chased, and for two days the fugitives were brought back to the power in twos and threes. Rapata took it for granted that they were all concerned in the massacre at Poverty Bay. Each of the captives, as he arrived, was stripped taken to the edge of the cliff, shot dead, and his body thrown over. About a hundred and twenty were thus slaughtered, but Tekuti himself escaped, and for the next two years he lived the life of a hunted animal, chased through the gloomy forests by the relentless Rapata. He fought many fights. His twenty how-how followers were often near to death from starvation, but at length wearied out, he threw himself on the mercy of the white men, was pardoned, sunk into obscurity, and died in peace. War was not really at an end till 1871, as up to that date occasional skirmishes took place, but there never was any fear of a general rising of the Maoris after 1866. 16. Progress of New Zealand these wars were confined to the North Island. Otago, Canterbury and Nelson felt them only by way of increased taxes. Otherwise they were left in peace to pursue their quiet progress. They multiplied their population sixfold. They opened up the country with good roads. 
a railway was cut through the mountain to join Christchurch with its seaport, Littleton, by a tunnel half a mile long. A similar but easier railway was made to join Dunedin to Port Chalmers. Gold was found in various parts, especially in Otago and on the west coast round Hokitika. For a time, New Zealand sent out gold every year to the value of two and a half million pounds, and this lucrative pursuit brought thousands of stout settlers to her shores. In 1864, the New Zealand Parliament chose Wellington to be the capital of the colony, as being more central than Auckland. In 1868, an Act was passed to abolish the provinces and to make New Zealand more completely a united colony. A great change began in this same year, when the first Maori chief was elected to be a member of the New Zealand Parliament. Before long, there were six Maoris seated there two of them being in the upper house. These honourable concessions, together with a fairer treatment in regard to their land, did much to show the Maoris that their lives and liberties were respected by the white men. They had lost much land, but what was left was now of more use to them than the whole had formerly been. Their lives and their property were now safer than ever, and they learnt that to live as peaceful subjects of Queen Victoria was the happiest course they could follow. The government built schools for them and sent teachers. It built churches for them and cared for them in many ways. Thus they became well satisfied, even if they sometimes remembered with regret the freer life of the olden times. But Sir George Grey, who was the warm friend of the Maori, was no longer governor. He had finished his work and his term of office had expired. Sir George Bowen came out to take his place. Grey, after a trip to England, returned to take up his residence in New Zealand, and a few years later allowed himself to be elected a member of its parliament. Subsequently, he became its prime minister, sinking his own personal pride in his desire to do good to the country. From 1870 to 1877, the affairs of the country were chiefly directed by ministries in which Sir Julius Vogel was the principal figure. He started and carried out a bold policy of borrowing and spending the money so obtained in bringing out fresh settlers and in opening up the land by railways. This plan plunged the colony deeply into debt, but it changed the look of the place, and although it had its dangers and its drawbacks, it has done a great deal for the colony. At first, the natives refused to let the railways pass through their districts, but in 1872, a great meeting of chiefs agreed that it would be good for all to have the country opened up. Some maintained a dull hostility till 1881, but all the same, the railways were made until at length 2,000 miles were open for traffic. Between 1856 and 1880, Nineteen different ministries managed the affairs of New Zealand, one after the other, the same Prime Minister, however, presiding over different ministries. The most notable of these have been Sir William Fox, Edward W. Stafford, Major Atkinson and Sir Julius Vogel. In 1880, the colony had increased to 500,000 white people, owning 12 million sheep, 
and exporting nearly six million pounds worth of goods. The Maoris were 44,000, but while the whites were rapidly increasing, the Maoris were somewhat decreasing. They had 112,000 sheep and nearly 50,000 cattle, with about 100,000 pigs. The heavy expenditure of the borrowing years from 1870 to 1881 was followed by a time of depression from 1880 to 1890, during which Sir Robert Stout and Major Atkinson were Prime Ministers. But at the end of that period, the colony began rapidly to recover. Its population approached 750,000, with 42,000 Maoris. Its sheep were nearly 20 million in number, and its farms produced 20 million bushels of wheat and oats. It sent four million pounds worth of wool to England, and about one million pounds worth of frozen meat. The general history of the last 20 years may be summed up as consisting of immense progress in all material and social interests. End of section 29 End of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland